Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. The cognitive psychologist Ulrich Neiser once said, the world of experience is produced by the man who experienced it. The same is true for all animals. We construct our private worlds of subjective experience according to the information our senses are attuned to. The human world represents only one of all the different animal worlds. So, what is it like, what is it really like, to be another creature? What is it like to see, smell, hear, taste, and feel the world as they do? What is our world like? What are we like to another? Our guest today, the extraordinarily imaginative writer and explorer, Dr. Charles Foster, wanted to find out. So, Dr. Foster got down on all fours and tried his best to do just that, picking five types of animals close to home to try to inhabit. He lived as a Welsh badger for six weeks in the woods, eating earthworms, digging an underground den, sleeping in it during the day, and navigating by scent on his hands and knees at night. As an urban fox, he curled up in backyards in London's East End and pawed through garbage cans for dinner scraps. As an Exmoor otter, he caught fish with his teeth and attempted to differentiate bowel movements with his nose. As a red deer, he let his toenails grow like overgrown hooves and was hunted by bloodhounds. And as a common swift, he followed the bird's migration across Europe and into West Africa. In addition to immersing himself in these animals' physical worlds, Dr. Foster immersed himself deeply in the physiological literature about their ways of life. He recounts his adventures in non-humanness in his spectacularly imaginative, unorthodox, truly hilarious, daring, and award-winning book, Being a Beast, Adventures Across the Species Divide, which the New York Times called Intensely Strange and Terrifically Vivid, an eccentric modern classic of nature writing. Dr. Foster is a fellow of Green Templeton College at the University of Oxford. In addition to being a best-selling author, he is a trained veterinary surgeon and a practicing barrister and teaches medical law and ethics at Oxford. He has spent much of his life on expeditions of the mind and the body, such as running a 150-mile race in the Sahara Desert and skiing to the North Pole, and has written books on travel, evolutionary biology, natural history, anthropology, theology, archaeology, and philosophy. Ultimately, he says, his work all attempts to answer the questions, who or what are we and what on earth are we doing here? We're very pleased to have Dr. Charles Foster with us today on When We Talk About Animals. So you open the book with a confession of sorts. Um, You say that you'd hoped it would have very little to do with you, but what you found was that it became the story of your rewilding, and you describe it as a lament at the loss of your wildness. So we're curious, when and how did you forget that you were essentially wild? All human children, and I was no exception, grow up assuming that they're part of the wild world. And because of the place where I grew up, which was poised uh, right on the cusp of the city and the wilderness, um, I was particularly acutely aware of that. And then I grew up and away physically from the land. I went to the city. I uh, 
got bigger as a human being. The sensory receptors in my head hoisted themselves as I grew even further from the uh, the land from which um, we all sprouted. Um, and I bought in to the uh, delusion that the natural world was a resource. Um, it was something to be controlled. Um, it was something to be uh, subdued. It was something to be frightened of. Um, and that's the delusion of our culture and the cancer which eats uh, uh, away at the center of it. So um, it was lots of things. It was growing physically up. It was giving myself um, airs and graces. It was thinking that I was important. It was asserting in my own head um, a wholly artificial distinction between uh, humanness and wildness. And it was a catastrophe, um, personally, um, and it's a catastrophe, as I think we can all see, for our societies. Um, our societies have made exactly that uh, transition. Um, it happened, I suppose, finally in about the 18th century, when we first began to see the natural world as a, a de-souled machine, um, something that uh, existed for our benefit and which it wasn't immoral to try to destroy. So the, the march of mankind from the Upper Paleolithic um, to the Enlightenment um, was uh, a march which I and most other humans uh, reenact as we grow up from the relatively Eden-like state of our childhood. There's a, a story I had encountered in a book on the history of bells that seems like a non sequitur, but it, it came to mind listening to you talk about this um, French village called Le Bruce in the 17th century. At the time, social life was totally organized by the ringing of bells. It told you when to meet, when to come to church, when the, there was going to be a, a decree, etc. And the village came to blows. There was literally a civil war over whether to ring the bell in thunderstorms. And half the town thought that if you rung it, you would scare off the storms, and so you should. And the other half thought that it would entice them. And so they, of course, they, they all agreed on the underlying assumption, which was that there was any causal connection between the sound and the sky, but it didn't prevent any of the bloodshed and so forth. And I think in the book, one of the most fascinating and provocative ideas that I think you handle grace really gracefully is this sense that there's this colonial impulse that pervades a lot of nature writing that you try to avoid, where essentially praising nature and kind of romanticizing it, you posit is participating in the same impulse that has led to its marginalization and its destruction, which is now we're realizing leading to our own destruction. And um, and so, yeah, I'm just curious if that was, uh, that was your, an ambition um, intellectually that helped spark the project, or if as you started living the lives of these animals, as you understood them, that kind of seeped into the um, endeavor. Yes, I warned myself at the beginning of the book um, that that was a danger. And looking back at the book now, I see it's um, a trap into which I fell completely. Um, so most nature writing I say in the book, and I believe is um, essentially a colonial enterprise. It's about usually white, usually middle class, usually male people striding into wood and um, describing uh, their own thoughts about the wood um, rather than uh, 
um, anything about the wood um, itself. It becomes a process of, of uh, self-reference and self-reverence, a, a sort of um, intellectual masturbation. Um, we're, we're using the wood um, as a mirror to admire ourselves in, um, rather than as something which is um, valuable in its own right. We're using the natural world, as we always do, as a resource. Um, and I think lots of modern nature writing is just an example of that. Um, I tried this elaborate process of zoological method acting in an attempt to escape from that, in an attempt particularly to um, overcome some of the uh, human sensory particularly visual biases and the cognitive biases uh, which are associated with our visual dominance, which um, make that self-reverence and self-reference uh, um, so much uh, uh, more difficult to escape. But let's be clear, this book is a slam dunk failure um, in, in that respect, as in almost all others. We should say the book is truly terrific. We beg to differ. Thank you. Um, but uh, I ended the book as I began the book as uh, a sanctimonious white um, middle class uh, um, self-referencing, uh, self-reverencing male. One thing that's interesting is that you you do somewhat when you're inhabiting the badger and some of the other animals, you bring along um, your son for some of these adventures. And he, he turns out, as you proudly say at one point, to be a truly excellent Excellent badger. Um, but I wonder how that interplay um, of both raising your own family of human animals um, and little animals growing up before your eyes that you're you know, immediately related to impacted your study of the broader family of animals that were you know, distantly related to. But as you, as you write powerfully, really not that distantly, given that we've all only been here for a tiny speck of time in the course of the world's history. Yeah. So my children were and are my great research tools, and they're also my great inspiration. Um, they remind me every time I see them uh, that there was a time when I had a better connection than I do at the moment to the natural world, and they can help me reclaim it. Um, so children have forgotten so much less than, uh, as adults, we have forgotten about mm. um, not only the natural world, but um, about the way that the world in general is. Um, children are the epistemological experts. P Plato was right. Um, the process of knowing anything about the world is the process of anamnesis, uh, unforgetting, and children have forgotten less than we have. So um, by uh, trying to enter my children's minds, um, I was entering the, the minds of of people with far fewer sensory and cognitive biases. And I have a, a num another great advantage, and that is that uh, my son Tom, with whom I went into the Welshwood um, on the badger part of the project, has the fantastic gift of dyslexia, um, which means that he doesn't uh, reduce the world as I reduce the world to a set of propositions um, described in human language. He has a much more holistic um, appreciation of it. Um, he sees context, he sees colour. Um, when I go into a wood, I look at a tree and for a tiny fraction of a second, I get some visual images about that tree. Um, but I translate uh, those visual images almost immediately into things which have nothing to do with that glorious tree. 
um, into fragments of remembered poems about trees, physiological facts that I remember about trees and so on. Nothing to do with that tree itself. Tom doesn't do that. And I think that most young children don't do that. But Tom, as he's got older, um, because he has this fantastic um, dyslexia, um, does that much less than children of his age. Um, I want to have the directness of uh, connection with uh, the world as a whole that, that Tom has. And so he's he's a great guide to go with. He's, um, he's a, an epistemological sage. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I too have a brother who's dyslexic and have had um, uh, similar experiences at different times in my life getting to know him. And I think if had I not been similarly perhaps to yourself um, raised with my with my brother, whose who's dyslexia, as you say, is one of the things that makes him very remarkable as well, that I don't know if I would have the same appreciation for how different other human minds can be, that you kind of assume on some level, you know, everyone takes in information more or less like I do, give or take a little bit here, but it's basically the same. And then it's an interesting thing to then think about other animals in that context to realize that not only do other humans see the world and, and experience, not just see the world in, in really radically different ways than I do, but then that extends even further than to these other creatures. Yeah, my, my worry is that I don't see the world at all. All I have ever seen and described is the contents of my own head. Um, I'm worried that I'm locked up um, inside my own cognition. And the inside of my head is a terribly lonely and terribly dull place. I suspect that the most boring wood is a fantastically more charismatic place um, than uh, the inside of my head, even at its uh, most glorious. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see something, um, e even if it's a, a stick or a, a little clod of earth. But I'm worried that I don't do that because um, of my linguistic reductionism. And, yeah, Tom can uh, can mitigate that. It's so interesting. It reminds me of a passage in the book where you talk about what you call the tyrannous vocabulary that occasionally academics who study animals employ to talk about their minds, um, the mechanistic view inherited from Skinner that, as you say in the book, sometimes feels like a little bit like a Rube Goldberg machine, um, like using terms like stimulus to communicate something that we could have said more simply and that occlude us from what's actually going on. And it's, yeah, as hearing you talk about the, that worry of solipsism, it's, it, I, it's making me wonder whether that the, the same forces at play um, in making that vocabulary tempting are the forces at play in inducing us to think of ourselves as hardware with culture, as software, et cetera. Yeah, we, we, we touch on this a little bit already. I think um, I think historically you can draw an absolutely clear connection between the systematic desolment of the world um, at the Enlightenment and uh, lots of the intellectual malaises uh, which manifest themselves in uh, psychological and psychiatric malaises in the early 21st century um, and are expressed in the reductionist uh, and deeply impoverished language, which is characteristic of academic discourse. Your book, in terms of nature writing, as as the New York Times and so many others have said, is really uh, kind of a new breed or in a new genre of its own. But it reminded me, if anything, 
more so than any other book I've read about animals of some fictional tales. Um, most, most notably, the one I'm thinking about is Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, the novella in which uh, Gregor Samsa, the salesman, wakes up one morning to find out that he's been inexplicably turned into a giant cockroach, and he struggles to adjust. He's still a, you know, a human in the mind, per se, but struggles to adjust to his transformed life and body. And this, you know, this is sort of held up as a celebrated piece of extraordinary sort of sympathetic imagination. And I also think of a, of a recent tale by George Saunders, a, sh- a short parable, basically, of, in which the fox's home has been replaced by a shopping mall, and the, and the fox is recounting, um, recounting this, this story to the reader. And I wonder, did you, ever, did you ever think about approaching this with fiction or turn to fiction as a valuable source that, that as, as we discussed briefly in the introduction, you did a deep personal sort of firsthand dive yourself, sometimes literal dive into the water during your otter experience and so forth, but and also into the scientific literature. But I wonder, did you look beyond that too to try to inform this project? I, I did. And I think the book would have been a less unsatisfactory book um, had I had the nerve to make this uh, purely a work of fiction. Um, I, I think the book is an uncomfortable halfway house. Um, it's not scientific. It's something which is informed loosely by the scientific literature, which um, I read, uh, but it, it can't have a, a real claim to be um, systematic scientific fieldwork. Um, so it's not science. It's not, it's not, it's not fact. Um, uh, and it's uh, insufficient uh, an exercise of the imagination to be really useful. Um, had I had the nerve, this would have been a book about shamanic journeyings, which are the real, really intimate um, expressions of association between um, humans and animals. But as I acknowledge in the book, uh, I'm too scared to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. That reminds me of um, the book, perhaps you're familiar with it, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abrams, um, which is about... Well. Oh, yeah, which is about where he has a stunning scene at the beginning, which is about shamanism and, and language and um, nature and uh, where he describes how a lot of people misunderstand the role of shamans in in, in villages to, to be sort of mediating between the people and um, the deities. Whereas in reality, the shamans in the villages that he visits are always on the edge of the village because their role is to basically serve as an intermediary between the people and nature to sort of deepen when they have illnesses, their connection to nature in various ways, which I thought was really, um, was really fascinating and, and I think fits with your book too as a, in terms of a way of going after whether the illnesses are in the case of some of the villagers, physical or, or you know, metaphysical, feeling more deeply connected to nature has a profound impact that, that is, does really go beyond words, it seems, for many of us. Yes. Um, I think all writers of any books that are worth writing and worth reading um, feel themselves to be edge people. And the only justification for um, the extraordinarily self-indulgent um, business of being a writer is that it does some social good by uh, allowing some sort of mediation between the ontologically queasy vertiginous world which the writer inhabits and um, the the world which is occupied by people who don't have the luxury to um, sit gazing at, gazing at their navels all day and i, I suppose yeah if, if i want to be grandiose about it um uh, I, I would like to think that uh, good nature writing is is sort of shamanic in that sort of way can you take us to the burrow of the badger, there's an extraordinary passage where you describe the wall of soil um, as being alive and not at all static in the way that human walls are, of course. So I'm curious, what, what actually was it like to be in there and to be in there with your son? 
it was of course dark most of the time uh, so we had to switch on our torches in order to see that the walls of this uh, badger set this badger hole um, writhed like a uterus because of all the worms all around us um we, it smelled of decay because it was made of decaying vegetation which was all around us um things dropped off into our hair and into our mouths if we slept with our mouths open um tom uh, curled up next to me in a naturally badger-like way at the end of the hole it was surprisingly unthreatening i expected to feel that uh, this was like being in the grave and i expected to be overcome by dread of death it wasn't like that at all um instead it felt like a uterus it felt like something which was writhing in order to push us both out into the world outside um the world outside seemed to be the real thing for which uh, this uterus was just a preparation so i don't imagine badgers feel like that at all i imagine that they they see it rather the other way around um, the, the hole, which is where most of their association happens, um, is the real business of life. And, and the, uh, the world outside is just a fueling station where they go to get the earthworms and slugs that they um, need to survive. So I think we got that wrong as well. Did you and your son find yourselves communicating differently in that environment? We tried not to talk because badgers don't talk. Um, and... So we did get a slightly more adept at reading non-visual cues. Um, we were primarily concentrating on the sense of smell. So we would keep our eyes shut a lot of the time. We would look out, well, sniff out for smell cues from one another, for um, auditory cues from one another. And the world with our eyes shut or ability to use our eyes usefully um, shut off seemed a much more intimate place, a, a much more sensitive place, um, a much more nuanced place. Um, when we turned on the lights and opened our eyes, it was raucous. Um, it was visually deafening. It was crass. Um, that There seemed to be so much less sensory counterpoint going on in the visual world than there had been in the um, the, the non-visual worlds that we've been inhabiting. And relating to one another using those cues, I think deepened our relationship in um, a way which nothing else would have done. Um, lots of the attuning to one another, which I think we got better at, was not in a sensory way at all. I, I think it was by uh, tapping into uh, cues which are wholly subliminal, whether those are Rupert Sheldrake-type morphic fields or or whatever. But yes, we, we do have a connection which is closer because it was brokered in those, for humans, slightly unusual circumstances. You also write about how it impacted your sense of time, and at, at one point you write that you buried your watch. Yes. Um, so I felt the tyranny of time, just as I felt the tyranny of vision, just as I felt the tyranny of cognition. And I want to get back to the real cycles. So the cycles of the sun and the moon. And uh, that's quite an easy thing to do. Just throw away a watch. 
um, avert your eyes when you go past anywhere that might have a, a watch in it. So I don't have a watch now. Um, I don't have a phone, and it's my small and little um, pathetic little attempt to uh, retain a, a little bit of natural freedom, even around the business of my everyday life. It means that I set off ridiculously early for things, waiting for students to arrive for supervision sessions or whatever. And you write that throughout all this, as you were living as a badger and as other animals, you did nonetheless find, by the end of these experiences, that there did seem to be some indestructible core of Charles Foster-ishness. What is that indestructible core that you that you describe? I can describe some of its attributes to you, but that, that, I think that would be very interesting. Okay. Um, that those are uh, reflected in some of the biographical things which um, you've said already. What is that core? Well, I, I, I guess it's what people have classically described as the soul. Um, what can I tell you about it? Um, I can tell you that it's different from yours. Um, I can tell you that um, despite an awful lot of these things which um, time and circumstance have done to me, um, lots of things about it have, have remained the same. It, it seems to me to have the, the, the sort of quality which um, physical destruction of my body is unlikely to affect. Um, it, it's it's related um, importantly but inconsistently to my preferences, my attitudes. <laughs> it's, a huge, it's a huge question you ask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things in, which is reflected in your answer there that's so unusual about the book is that the book is, is very humble about the that you go on this extraordinary quest with the understanding that this is uh, ultimately to know what it's like to be another. You can try. The, 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 there are limits to what's what's possible, um, and it doesn't. The book the book is very humble about what what it can accomplish, and uh, and you're overly humble about how wonderful the book is. But I, I wonder, th- thinking about that Charles Fosterishness, um, which I thought was a wonderful way of putting it, the approach and relations with other animals around you, both human and non-human, as you write about in the book, has evolved over time. And um, as, as listeners probably picked up from the introduction, that you're a very skilled an experienced person in all sorts of range of fields, including early in your in your childhood, you write about how you were obsessed with blackbirds in particular, and then that turned into a passion for taxidermy and for being a, um, a country hunter. Then eventually you became a veterinary surgeon among uh, many other skills and accolades. And I'm curious, how did those very different experiences with animals come together to shape this book and to uh, you know, evolve into your current thinking about your relations with other creatures? All the things you describe have all been part of the same quest to try and find out what sort of creature I am and what sort of world it is this creature that I am is um, trying to exist in. Um, So they're they're all quests which pertain to the selfish uh, goal of personal thriving of Charles Foster or whatever he is and wherever he is. Um, But I was fortunate that I, I recovered fairly early in my adult life um, that that childhood knowledge that um, I was a wild thing, um, e- even though I wore a suit, um, e- even though I used um, a sophisticated vocabulary. What was I most basically? It was uh, a, a child wandering in the wilderness 
having proceeded from the wilderness with all its uh, recent um, ancestors being uh, unabashed wilderness things. So I, I felt that in order to recover what I was, which is what I was in an undiluted way as a child, I had to um, recover expressly um, a relationship with the natural world. And having become a linguistic animal, my way of trying to recover that relationship had to be um, a linguistic one. I have, I had to, and have to discuss ad nauseam as we're doing now. Relationship <laughs> um, with the natural world. Um, so this book is um, an attempt written in human language to describe how hopeless human language is for describing anything. It's um, it's an, an intellectually uncomfortable position. One of the most moving parts for me was when you're talking about in the chapter on being a fox, when, of course, as a fox, you're scavenging, you're eating stuff that you'd never imagine eating as a participant in our human world. And you describe taking along spices and I imagine salt and... I wonder if you could talk about that. And there was something about the otherness that was exhilarating, but that you needed to kind of mitigate out of some kind of nostalgia for our world. Yes. So the passage you're talking about is uh, when I'm feeding myself as urban foxes in London sometimes do by um, rummaging for waste food from trash cans. And I didn't like the idea that other people had had their mouths around it and uh, because of a slight saliva phobia, I would um, cover it with um, spices and herbs to make it um, to make it less disgusting to me. Um, was that really about otherness? I don't think it was about anything so intellectually interesting, to be honest. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was about not liking the idea of someone else's spit. But there is, but there is something really important uh, about um, otherness. I think going on behind our conversation. I, as I've admitted already. Um, don't want to feel alone in the world. Um, the the contents of other people's heads seem to me to be objects of exploration, far more distant, far more difficult, and far more important than the exploration of uh, the most distant galaxies. I was I was looking in the course of the research for this book at tools which would allow me to probe the mystery of otherness, simply so that um, I wouldn't feel as alone in the world as I guess most of us do. Um, I wanted to convince myself that I could have a proper conversation, not at cross purposes with my wife and my children and my best friends. And um, one way of reassuring myself that that was possible was to see if I could know anything at all about um, creatures which are not so closely akin to me. So if I could know anything about what it's like to be a badger, um, perhaps I could be a friend, an understanding father or whatever. I think that's an absolutely universal quest. Um, and it's something which the, the strenuous uh, attempt at empathy, which um, this book describes, um, can help us do. So trying to get inside the sensory world of a fox or a badger is a bit like a sort of empathy gym. It's quite hard. Um, I failed utterly to do it. Uh, but my empathy muscles got slightly bigger by the exercise of trying to do it. And, and that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. I, I agree. It makes me think of um, an essay by Wendell Berry in which he talks about how imagination, the word imagine, the root 
of it uh, means to see and uh, basically links imagination and compassion as one and the same and that we don't often think of compassion and empathy or whatever word one decides to choose as an imaginative act, but that fundamentally imagination is at the core of compassion and empathy. And that I think like a lot of the reviews of the book talk about what an imaginative book it is, and, and it certainly is, but really it's an exceptionally empathetic book. And, and, um, and it makes clear too that as, as you just did in your, in your point, that the muscle of compassion isn't something that has a zero sum to be applied to you know, just animals and not to people or applied to people and not to animals or that there's a limited amount to go around, but that there's uh, that to be kind and empathetic to one, if anything, extends our ability to be kind and empathetic to the other. And hearing, hearing you um, talk about the, the loneliness that we all feel as one of the drivers to understand this reminded me of an early section of the book in which you talk about um, creation myths with regards to humans and animals. And you, one of the many fields that you've studied and written other books about is theology. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how both your study of theology informed this book and also if the process of inhabiting these animals' lives informed how you, how you look back now on those creation myths. The way in which the Genesis 1 mandate to subdue the world has been so malignantly misconstrued. And I think one of the ways in which it is manifest is in the colonialism of our approach towards the natural world, which we've already described. Um, so if, if you want to put a theological spin on the book, which I don't, but you've invited me to, to see how it, how to describe how it might be done, um, it, the book could be described, I suppose, as an attempt to uh, reinterpret the Genesis 1 injunction, to reconstrue the word subdue, uh, in order to stop it doing the, all the damage that it has done, to see that mandate as uh, something which derives from deep kinship between uh, man and animals. Man and animals were created at the same time, according to that particular myth. Um, they, they share the same origin. They were spoken into existence by the same voice. Um, to subdue is really an onerous uh, covenant of stewardship rather than um, anything which should make us feel good about ourselves. We should, we should feel the yoke of responsibility um, rather than feeling that these uh, creatures are there for our benefit. It's interesting hearing you speak about that. It makes me think of some of the origin myths in the um, non-Judeo-Christian tradition, um, thinking of the churning of the sea of milk, I think it's in Hinduism, um, where there are a bunch of humans and non-humans fighting, and they're, they've wrapped this snake around a, a pole that's sitting on a turtle. And in the process of their pulling of each end of the snake, they churn up the sea that they're in, and out of the sea come all these other beings. Reading your book, I guess the exuberance of that and the humor and the refusal to hierarchize um, beings felt to me kind of simpatico with the spirit of of your book. So I wonder if, if that, how the exploration that became the book um, impacted your intuitions theologically. You've spoken about it a bit already. Yes. Um, one, one thing which I would, should say, since you've raised the issue of, of a human-animal hierarchy, is that 
Um, although there is plainly um, a, an evolutionary continuity between um, animals and humans, and plainly uh, the killing of animals is a, a highly morally significant act. Um, it doesn't follow from that, um, or it doesn't follow from that without a great deal of, um, uh, of rather dishonest philosophical work, that um, animals and humans are not different from one another in important respects. So um, for the avoidance of doubt, I, I think that it is hugely more exciting to be a human than it is to be a badger. Um, I'm sure that a Welsh woodland would look far more exciting to uh, a fully realised, fully switched on human um, than it would to even the most fully realised, fully switched on badger. Um, so I, I would want to preserve the notion, yes, of continuity, but also of of. The, the, the sort of difference which is which is manifest in in the stewardship responsibility which i've um which i've just uh, talked about um other than that i don't, i really don't think that this is um in any sense um a theological book or is uh helpfully informed by um any theological speculations that i might have had um the, the the other thing which might be pertinent to say is that I, I don't think that I was doing in this book um, anything which almost all human beings who have ever lived would have regarded as um, strange or uh, exciting at all. So we are all Pleistocene creatures, right? Um, uh, all, all our reflexes have been generated by the um, expectation that there is a lion or a wolf which is going to um, spring out at any moment. What what I was doing in this book, crawling around on all fours, using my nose as well as my uh, eyes, would have been essential nine till five survival skills for almost every human being that has ever existed. The really eccentric people are the ones who sit on sofas and look at screens. I know that one of the defining characteristics of a of a lunatic is that he says that other people are the mad ones. Uh, so maybe, <laughs> maybe this sounds a, a bit like uh, over defensiveness on my part, but I I, I think it's true. Um, when I describe in the book how, as a child, I, in an attempt to get inside the um, head of a blackbird, ha uh, went to sleep holding the pickled brain of a blackbird in the hope that its wisdom would seep out into my fingers or as I watched that blackbird which I'd stuffed circling on its thread above my childhood bed um, those were things which any shaman um, in any uh, period of human history apart from our own our own deeply eccentric unusual anomalous uh, situation would have regarded as absolutely standard techniques um, so that is my textbook response to the people who say that this is a, a weird book, and and it's my it's my response to to your very kind comments too, um, that this is uh, a really epic um, kind of enterprise. I, I really, and this isn't just uh, touching English self-deprecation. I really don't think there's anything unusual here. I think um, all I describe is what 
almost all human children, even today, do most of the time, and what almost all human beings, for almost all of the time that humans have existed, have done uh, all of the time. Why did you come back? I came back because I have a wife and children and a mortgage, because I, because I feel that um, I am incurable. I'm an incurable product of a system that uh, I know to be wrong and dysfunctional and not conducive to mine or anyone else's thriving, but that um, the disabilities which I have inherited as a member of 21st century society um, are such that I can't have the full-time, direct, umbilical connection with the natural world, which um, I would have been able to have had the world not spoiled me, had not spoiled us, had not spoiled itself. Do you think that spoiling is unique to humans as a species? Or do you think, is the spoiling um, you know, to do with our industrialization and our uh, separation from nature in a way, though one could perhaps make the argument that the houses we build and the TVs we construct, you know, they all are all part of nature, perhaps, depending on, on where that boundary is drawn? Or is the spoiling inherent in speciesization, almost, in that any creature is, is, has limits to its perceptual world that other creatures can expand beyond in different ways? I, I think it's a uniquely human characteristic. Um, it's a characteristic which is uniquely associated with the transition from the Upper Paleolithic to the Neolithic. So the disaster of settlement with everything which came with it. And no doubt uh, the disaster was crystallized by and accelerated by the increasing numbers of humans that uh, were generated at that time and afterwards, which uh, created the necessity for uh, for societies and politics, uh, which um, themselves generated their own uh, toxins and uh, corrupted us further. Um, I, I can't see any evidence in animal societies of anything akin to that upper Paleolithic, uh, Neolithic um, movement taking place. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human phenomenon and it's, it's to do with stopping moving. We're meant to move, we're meant to wander. And just as blood clots and kills when it stops moving, so humans uh, die when they stop moving. And I think that's what's happening to us. So we're curious also how clearly this adventure has informed your work and your thinking in profound ways. What has it been like to re-enter the human world and confront the relationships that helped inspire the project in the first place um, and continue writing and continue speaking? Did it, did language continue to feel alienating to you or, or did you feel more at home in it after this experience? Shortly after I came back from um, the periods of immersion, which um, had characterized this project, um, I had a, a serious disillusionment with the whole 
academic project because it was a project which uh, was necessarily, or I saw it as necessarily mediated through language. And I had such lack of confidence in language as a result of what had happened to me that I thought very seriously of uh, abandoning that enterprise. Um, uh, and then I realized, as I've just acknowledged, that um, I don't have any other tools. It is too late for me to become a non-linguistic creature. Yes, I play music. Yes, I listen to poems being read. Um, yes, I put my palms flat on the ground in the woodland whenever I go there and try to suck up sensation of other sorts. But I can't pretend that um, language isn't the dominant uh, medium by which I uh, mediate the world. Um, so I thought that if I pushed language as far as it could go, um, it might... Uh, disarm itself. Language might um, overcome language. But the, the great Greek Orthodox chant at Easter time, death trampling down death. I, I wondered if language could trample down language. And, and that's still my ultimate ambition, uh, to, to, write, to write language which uh, subverts language. Um, has this affected my relationships? Well, um, you'd have to ask the people who are um, affected by them. Uh, I hope that they would say that I am more present to them, that I, I watch, that I smell, that I listen in a way that I didn't before, but I don't know whether they'd say that. Uh, as for my relationship with the urban environment that um, I have to work in a lot of the time, David Abraham, who we've mentioned already, um, talks about there being only ever relatively unwild places. And I like that very much. So if you put a, a piece of bread out on a table in the most pristine Manhattan condo, you'll come back a few days later and it'll be covered by a wild, uncontrolled, uncontrollable efflorescence of bacteria and fungi. A, a shopping mall uh, can, if you're walking down it uh, with uh, your senses switched on, paying the attention which we should bring to the whole of the world, that can be uh, a wild place. You can be a wild creature in a wild place as you're um, shopping in Primark. And, and that's, that's my objective. I fail, of course, all the time, but I think I'm slightly better at seeing uh, the urban world in that way than I was. I am wondering here if you were secretly Kafka reincarnated. Because <laughs> as we know, Kafka was as humble as you are, if not ashamed of himself. Well, um, that's a very high compliment. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, speaking of books and authors, um, we would like to ask as we wrap up the episodes, Dr. Foster, each of our guests for two or three books or films that have influenced how they think about animals that they'd recommend both us and to listeners. Do a couple come to mind for you? Thinking about books or films, uh, thinking about language being mediated and, and its limits kept in mind. Yeah. Um, one of the most important books for me uh, as a child and now is uh, Henry Williamson's book, Tarka the Otter. Um, Williamson uh, battered um, by the tensions of the First World War, came back to rural Devon and 
uh, followed an otter whom he named Tarka around the country of the two rivers, the Tor and the Torridge. And um, Tarka there is uh, a redemptive creature. Um, it gives England back to Williamson. It gives the world back to him in a way. The world had been smashed up um, on the Western Front for him, and it was slowly reconstructed by the paws of Tarka the Otter um, in Devon. Um, he, I love Williamson because he's such a, an acute observer of the world. Um, I, I loathe lots of things about it. I hate his politics. Um, I get exasperated by his um, introspection, but uh, I love him as an observer. And, and the other book, um, since you asked me to name a book about um, the natural world, and because I've spent a lot of time over the last uh, few minutes talking about man as a part of the natural world, um, I would say is Zorba the Greek. This is uh, a book about uh, a completely natural man um, who um, is uh, contemptuous of many of the taboos and conventions which constrain the society in which he exists. Um, by reading how Kazantzakis uh, renders Zorba, uh, we get an idea of of what man would be like um, if there weren't Shakespeare or uh, political and legal rules uh, to uh, affect the way that he lives. Um, for good and for bad, it's a fascinating thought experiment. Well, Dr. Foster, thank you for those recommendations and thank you very, very much for joining us. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and to the Yale Broadcast Studio, and to the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Foster and his book, Being a Beast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>